This morning our reading is from Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. Um, It can be found in the leaflets or on the screens. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now Boaz, with with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Good morning. It's great to be here again with you. And particularly if this is your first time, uh, welcome. I'm not the regular guy here, so if you don't like what I have to say today, that's okay. Um, But I'm just filling in for the next uh, last couple of weeks while Scott's been away. Uh, but I'm sure he would, on behalf of uh, everyone here, like to welcome you as well. So please hang around, make yourself known afterwards. Uh, we're going to be continuing this last section in Ruth. So why don't I pray really quickly that God will help us to understand his word today. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you as people who are hungry to hear you and empty in our lives. And so, Father, just as this story reminds us last week, may we be fed from your word May you fill us up by your spirit, and may we see Jesus more clearly today. Amen.
I have an important question to ask you today, and it's a question which most of us ask at one time or another. Uh, it's the age-old question of, how do you find love? How do you find love? Love is something that most of us want, uh, whether it's romantic love or the love of a friend or family member, but where do we find love? How would you know if you found love? For many people, we just have this kind of feeling in our tummies, don't we, when you found love? It's this warm, fuzzy thing, and you just, you just know when you found it. But how do you know you found love and not just temporary happiness or infatuation? How do you know that those warm and fuzzy feelings are love and not just the internal effects of that beautiful curry you ate for dinner the night before? Last week, we saw how love is more than just a feeling. Our love is a deep-seated commitment to act in the best interest of another person, no matter what. No matter how you feel, no matter what it costs you, and no matter the circumstances. And if finding this kind of romantic love is so hard, then it's much harder to find this kind of loyal, I'll stick by you no matter what kind of promise-based love. So today we're going to look at the last two chapters of Ruth and see how finding that special, God-shaped kind of love is actually what makes all of us complete. Uh, over the past two weeks, uh, sorry, past week, we looked at Ruth chapters one and two, uh, where there's this woman called Naomi. She leaves Israel to go and find bread in the neighboring country of Moab. And while she's there, her two sons marry two local girls, Orpah and Ruth. Fast forward 10 years, and her husband and her two sons have then died in Moab. And Naomi decides to move back to Israel, and she tells her daughter-in-laws to stay put in Moab. Orpah obeys Naomi, and she does that and goes back to her family. But Ruth sticks with Naomi and says, where you go, I will go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. We're in this together. So they move back to Israel to a little town called Bethlehem. And in Bethlehem, Ruth heads out to gather up the leftover scraps of food that are left over from the harvest that's going on. And she ends up in this field owned by a, name, a man named Boaz. Now, as it turns out, Boaz is actually a distant relative of Naomi's dead husband. And Boaz notices Ruth and shows kindness towards her. He gives Ruth heaps of food to eat and makes sure that she and her mother-in-law, Naomi, are looked after. And as we saw last week, Ruth searches for and finds bread. She finds justice as Boaz faithfully obeys the law of God. She finds refuge as Boaz protects her from danger. And she finds belonging as Boaz welcomes her into the Jewish family as an adopted daughter. But ultimately, Ruth searches for and finds the faithful, generous love of God. And it comes to her through this man, Boaz. And so things are going pretty well, and that's where this episode picks up. The story begins with Naomi again. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, uh, I think Naomi is actually the central character of Ruth. She appears at the beginning and at the end of every chapter. And this time, she's a bit more involved than in the past. It begins in verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Naomi wants to find a home for Ruth. Now, when it says she's searching for a home, it doesn't mean that Naomi's going to the real estate agent or looking at property prices in Bethlehem. If you look at the text, there's a little footnote down the bottom, and the verse literally says, My daughter, I must find rest for you so that it will be good for you. This is in stark contrast to chapter 1, where Naomi is back in Moab, and she says to Orpah and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness if you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Back in chapter 1, Naomi thought that her daughters-in-law would find rest in Moab. 
But now she realises that true rest will be found in Israel for Ruth. The question is, what is rest for Ruth? Does that mean that she'll go one day off per week to put her feet up? Does it mean she gets to have a girl's day out and go and pamper herself with mani-pedis? No, rest in the Bible is something much more important and significant than just having a little snooze or a bit of R&R. The concept of rest in the Bible is about enjoying the blessings of God in relationship with him. We often think that when God made the world that the pinnacle, the high point of creation, was when he made humans on the sixth day. But the story says, by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Back in the very opening chapters of the Bible, the goal of all of God's creative work is rest. And the purpose of this universe that we enjoy today is rest. Not some self-indulgent me time sitting on the couch, but it's about enjoying the rich, full completion of everything that God has made the way it was supposed to be made. And so rest could be described as God's people living in God's place, underneath God's rule, enjoying all of God's blessings the way they were supposed to be enjoyed. Rest is that rich fulfillment of everything being in the right place and the right order, just as God wanted it to be. And ultimately, that means it's all about God. And that's why the Israelites were commanded in the Old Testament not to rest just for themselves, but to rest for God. It says in Leviticus 23 that there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. And so rest is all about God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. And that is exactly why Ruth could not find rest back in Moab. Because in Moab, she was not one of God's people. In Moab, she was not living in God's place, the land of Canaan. In Moab, she was serving the gods of her parents, not the God of Israel. She was not living underneath Yahweh's rule. And as a result, she could not enjoy true rest, the blessings of God. And so now in chapter 3, Naomi is determined to find rest for Ruth. What a beautiful and loving thing to do. To help bring someone else to come and enjoy the same blessings and the same rest that Naomi had found as one of God's people. And in the Old Testament, God's people were the Israelites. God's place was the land of Canaan. His rule was the Old Testament laws of Moses. And his blessings were material things, food, a spouse, and lots of children. And so Naomi sets out to find some of God's blessings for Ruth by finding her a husband. This is a blessing. This is a good thing because if Naomi can find Ruth a husband, it will remove three bad things from her life. It will remove Ruth's shame of widowhood. It will remove Ruth's hunger for food. And it will remove Ruth's anxiety about the future in those days. And so Naomi tells Ruth what to do. And Ruth says, I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. Ruth is obedient to whatever Naomi asks of her. And she is faithful to her mother-in-law. But what is going to be the result of Naomi's scheme? Is it going to actually work out? Well, let's look at the next scene at night. The sun goes down and Ruth follows Naomi's plan to the letter. She's washed herself, she's put on some perfume, she's dressed herself in some new clothes and she's gone to meet Boaz. 
Now, on the one hand, it looks like Ruth is trying to dress to impress. Should we take it from this passage that God wants us to impress our future potential spouses by spending lots of time in front of the mirror making ourselves look really amazing? Well, it's possible, but it's also possible that while that may look superficial, the command Naomi gives to Ruth might be more significant. Because Ruth has been a widow in mourning. And one of the ways that you show your time of grieving as a widow is over is by washing yourself, anointing yourself with perfume and putting on some new clothes, taking off your black mourning clothes and putting on some new clothes. And so on the surface, we may think that it's Ruth trying to flirt with Boaz. In reality, she's bringing her mourning and grief to an end and embarking on a new, happier chapter of her life. And look at what Ruth does. She comes to Boaz, she approaches him quietly in verse 7, and then lies down. What? Where's the romantic scene where she, she grabs Boaz and gives him a kiss? Why does she go to all this effort and then just lies down at his feet? Well, so far in this episode, you'd expect something more to happen, right? And in fact, if you were a Jewish person, you'd be expecting a lot more. Because the threshing floor was not just a place where harvesters processed the grain. It was also a place where the pagan prostitutes would come and provide their services for the tired men who'd been harvesting. And so this whole story is set up in a way that you'd expect this foreign woman, all dressed up, all perfumed, who goes to the threshing floor, that place which was infamous for prostitution, and the man that she's uh, after has been eating and drinking, he's feeling pretty happy, and she comes to him and she starts to uncover him, and you're beginning to expect a certain outcome. But it doesn't happen that way. Because Ruth trusts that she doesn't need to take her fate into her own hands. She trusts that God will do what is best and she doesn't need to take control of the situation or try and force things. And this is in direct contrast to her ancestors. As we've seen throughout this story, Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites are the descendants of Lot, the cousin of Abraham. Lot and his family were, well to put it mildly, pretty messed up. He and his two daughters escaped from two evil towns called Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the story says that Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites of today. Ruth acts so differently by not trying to seduce Boaz or trying to force the situation in contrast to Lot and his daughters. Unlike Lot's daughters, she trusts that God will provide for her, and so she does things honorably, God's way, even though she doesn't know what the outcome is going to be. And so what happens? What is the outcome? Well, Ruth gets straight to the point about what she wants. Look at verse 9. She says, who, oh sorry, Boaz says, who are you? Next clicker. Who are you? I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now when Ruth says, spread the corner of your garment over me, she's literally saying in the original language, spread your wings over me. And this is a direct allusion to what Boaz said last week in chapter 2 when Boaz said to Ruth, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Last week, Boaz prayed that God would provide shelter and refuge for Ruth under God's wings. 
And now Ruth is saying to Boaz, be the answer to your own prayer, mate. By asking him to cover her with his garment, she's also asking for marriage. She's basically saying, share your doona with me. Can you imagine what Boaz went away thinking that day as he went home and wrote in his diary afterwards? Uh, maybe it was something like this. You know, when I passed by you again, I saw you. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered you. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you and, and you became mine. It sounds so intimate and romantic, doesn't it? Except that this isn't an excerpt from Boaz's diary. It's an excerpt from God's diary to his people. These words are taken directly from Ezekiel chapter 16. Because Boaz's relationship with Ruth, which is heading towards marriage, is an analogy of the relationship between God and his people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And it's a relationship that is also mirrored between the union between Jesus and his church today in the New Testament. But notice how at a superficial level, Boaz isn't the attractive option. He's not the guy you would pick. He says in verse 10 that she could have gone off after younger men who were more attractive or richer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. But even though he may not be attractive, Ruth knows that Boaz is the one who can redeem her. Because she doesn't look with her eyes superficially. She looks through the eyes of faith, with trust. That even though Boaz may not look that impressive, he is the redeemer, the man that she needs. And for us, Jesus of Nazareth, some criminal dying naked and shamefully on a Roman crucifix... That's not that impressive. It's not victory. It's defeat. Jesus is not the impressive choice of a king that we may have been after at a superficial level. But Jesus is the redeemer that we need. There's a bit of a problem. Even though it seems to be working out, Boaz likes Ruth, Ruth likes Boaz, there's actually a legal problem. Someone else who has first dibs, first rights, first call on redeeming Ruth and the property attached to her dead husband And so the question we're left thinking about at the end of chapter 3 is, what's going to happen? Well, now we're going to come to chapter 4 and find out, because the story hasn't resolved yet. It cuts to the next scene. But before she does that, as she's about to leave, Boaz, her redeemer, does something incredibly kind for her. It says in verse 14, She lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognised. And Boaz said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. There was so much potential for Ruth to be shamed or to be embarrassed. She'd gone to that place where prostitutes used to hang out and she stayed the night. Maybe you'd expect the walk of shame as she heads home the morning afterwards. But Boaz makes sure that her shame is taken away. As far as he is concerned, she has nothing anymore to be ashamed about. And our Redeemer Jesus, when he died on the cross for us, he didn't just take away our sins, but he also takes away the shame associated with our sins. He takes the penalty, the price that we deserve for our sins, but he also carries away that that shame we feel about it. Because unlike Ruth, we do deserve shame for our sins, for the way that we've treated God and the way that we've treated others. Our sin against God is not honourable. It's nothing to brag or to boast about. It brings all of us shame. But Jesus didn't just pay the cost of your sin. He took that shame as well. He was the one who was shamed, who was exposed and flogged naked as he hung on the cross so that your sins, your failures, your regrets, the things that you would not want anyone in this room to know about so that none of it would be laid bare before others or before God himself. 
before God, the righteous judge of the universe, there is now no condemnation and no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus, your Redeemer, like Boaz, has taken away all of your shame. And so Naomi ends this episode by telling Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Do you notice how chapter 3 both begins and ends with rest? Naomi sets out at the start in verse 1 to find rest for Ruth, and she ends by saying, Boaz will not rest until he has found rest for you. Because from now on, Boaz cannot rest until his love, until Ruth also has rest. Their fates, their destinies are now entwined together. And what happens to her effectively happens to him. If he rests, she rests. If she doesn't rest, he won't rest. And that is the same as Jesus and us. Jesus, our Redeemer, did not rest until he had one rest for us. And what he has begun in our lives, he will carry on to completion. And he will not stop interceding for you until one day you enter into his rest. In this story, Ruth ultimately has found true love. Not just a husband, but she's actually found someone who will redeem her. Someone who will bless her. Someone who will tie his fate to hers so that she can live in God's place as one of God's people and enjoy God's blessings. But it's not just Boaz showing love towards Ruth. Ultimately, it is God who shows his love and kindness to Ruth through this man Boaz. And one day, Jesus showed us his supreme loving kindness when he sent Jesus into the world to die on the cross. So before we get on to chapter 4, let's stop briefly and think about how we should respond to an even greater act of love from God. When you have experienced God's love, just like Ruth, you can begin to show love and kindness towards others. And so what does loving kindness look like? Well, I don't think in our world we celebrate kindness enough. You know, it's seen as a weakness, a vulnerability that people can take advantage of. You need to be cutthroat to get ahead in your career and in this world. Kindness begins, as Jesus said, in the golden rule, with treating others as you yourself would like to be treated. But I think there's some practical ways we can think about how to extend kindness towards others. So here's uh, five little tips about how you can grow in showing kindness and love towards others. First of all, think about the common physical needs that we all share. Okay, we all have needs of things like food, shelter, health. We all have common social needs as well. All of us need to be included and to belong somewhere. We all have a need for affection and warmth. Even things like smiling, they're common social needs that we all have in friendships. But then you can also think that even though we all have common things, we all have things that are unique and particular to us. There might be particular distinctive needs that an individual has. Uh, someone's allergic to nuts. That's a need that they have to avoid that you might not have if you really enjoy eating nuts. For me, I don't have a particular need for shampoo. And so if you want to do something loving for me, don't buy me shampoo. You might like to think about the cultural distinctives that someone has from different backgrounds. So my wife comes from an Asian background. Uh, and in Asia, it's really offensive to give someone a clock as a gift. It means you want them to die. So please don't ever give your Asian friends a clock. You can think about the loving affection. We can do a whole bunch of loving things. You could give Keely a meal, but just throw it on a doorstep and run away, right? Or you could smile and show loving warmth towards them, okay? Not just the act of doing love, but the warmth and the way you show that love towards others as well. And so in response to God's kindness, who this week can you be showing loving kindness towards? 
All right, so let's move on to chapter four. In chapter two, we were introduced to the idea that Boaz was a guardian redeemer as one of Naomi's close relatives. But in chapter three, Boaz says that he cannot redeem Ruth because someone else is a closer guardian redeemer who has that first dibs, that first rights to redeem Ruth. But in chapter four, the focus is all on this idea of redeeming things. But what exactly is redemption? Redemption is an idea that comes from the ancient marketplace. And in ancient times particularly, redemption was about buying things or land or even buying people. Now, we need to understand the context of the Old Testament laws and how God provided for land and people to be bought out of slavery once they'd fallen on hard times. So let's have a look at Leviticus chapter 25, which outlines some of the laws concerning selling and redeeming back land. It says, The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they have sold. If, however, there was no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are to determine the value for the year since they sold it and refund the balance back to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves... They retain the right of redemption after they've sold themselves. One of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. Or if they prosper, they may redeem themselves. If you were an Israelite in hard times, uh, what you could do is you could actually sell your family's inheritance, that plot of land that you had. But your close relative was then supposed to come and redeem the land to buy it and keep it within the family. And similarly, if things got really, really tough then as a last resort, you could actually sell yourself as a slave. But even in those circumstances, your family was supposed to step in and to redeem you so that you wouldn't be enslaved long-term to somebody else. And so redeeming was seen as a way to buy people back out of difficult situations. It always came at a cost, and it always happened because someone was in desperate, desperate need or debt. And God provided a set of laws and regulations to ensure that people wouldn't remain in slavery or lose their inheritance forever. And so this brings us to chapter 4 as we begin with this courtroom scene. In the first half of chapter 4, there's a tale of two redeemers, two guys dueling it out in a very public court battle to work out who's going to redeem the land that belongs to Naomi's dead husband and who's going to take responsibility for this widow named Ruth. Boaz grabs the other redeemer, this other relative who has the first call, and he sits him down, and in verse 2, he grabs 10 of the elders from the town, and he tells them to also come and sit down. They're all sitting down in the city gate. Now, in those days, the city gate was the de facto courthouse. And so you've got the two parties. You've got Boaz and this other guy, who's not even named. You have a jury, a bunch of witnesses, and so the legal proceedings begin. In this scene, Boaz effectively does all of the talking. He takes the initiative to commence the proceedings and to update the other redeemer about this block of land that Naomi is selling. Boaz has to inform this other guy that he's actually first in line to buy it if he wants it. But Boaz also tells him that if he doesn't want it, then Boaz will buy it. After verse 4, Boaz has given this lengthy speech. The other guy replies with just four words. All right, I will redeem it. Sounds like a great deal for this guy. He can expand his property portfolio That means more land to make money from, and one day he can pass it on to his kids. But there's a problem. Boaz goes on in verse 5. On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, 
then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. When the other redeemer hears that the property comes with a woman attached, he backs right out of the deal. Why is that? It sounds pretty superficial, doesn't it? But the answer is in verse 6. If he takes the field, he also has to take Ruth, and that will endanger his own estate. Because verse 6 says that he would have to maintain the name of the dead, Elimelech's family name with the property. And this other redeemer, according to the Old Testament law, was supposed to have kids with Ruth, but under the Old Testament law, they wouldn't legally be his. They'll legally take on the name of Elimelech's family, and so that will then jeopardise his own inheritance. Because as I said earlier, redeeming something always comes at a cost. It is always something that may endanger you and have a significant impact on your life, like this man. And this unnamed redeemer, he looks at the cost and he says, that is just, that's too much. I like the idea of taking on the field, but I don't want the cost of taking on that woman and having kids with her. It sounds really harsh. And on the one hand, it might be a little bit understandable. He's just looking out for his own interests. He's perfectly within his legal rights to refuse it. But that's the problem. This first redeemer is all about keeping the law and following it to the letter. He only does the bare minimum that he has to do. He won't go above the law if it's going to actually cost him. Because ultimately, that other redeemer doesn't have love. Contrast that to Boaz, who has consistently throughout this whole story gone above and beyond the law on multiple occasions to provide for Ruth, to protect Ruth, and now to ensure her redemption. And yes, it will cost Boaz to marry Ruth. It will be just as costly for Boaz as it will for the other redeemer. But unlike the other redeemer, Boaz is willing to count the cost because he loves Ruth. Love is costly, and redeeming someone is costly. And the cost is a part that stopped that first redeemer. So I want to ask you today, what about you? Will the cost of loving other people get in the way of you taking action for their good? Loving people is sacrificial. You need to actually sacrifice your good and your comfort and your resources for theirs. And so today, what costs of love do you think are off limits for you? Is it the cost of forgiveness? Is it the cost of reconciliation? Is it the cost of loving your enemies? Love will cost you financially. Love will cost you your time. Love will cost you your comfort. Love costs Jesus his very life. Jesus loves us so much that he gave up, he counted the cost of his very life. And Jesus' death is the example of what true costly love looks like. But look at how this courtroom scene ends. In verse 11, the witnesses say, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. They bless Boaz because of his great and costly love. But they're not just wishing him well and praying for lots of babies. They're specifically asking God to make Ruth like Rachel and Leah, the two matriarchs of the nation of Israel. And interestingly, but not coincidentally, Bethlehem was the place where Rachel was buried. They are asking Ruth to pick up where Rachel left off and to do something big and significant for the nation of Israel. 
And in verse 12, they pray that their family will be like Perez's, whose mother was Tamar. Now, again, you need to know your Old Testament history because Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And in Genesis 39, Judah is supposed to provide one of his sons as a redeemer for Tamar, his daughter-in-law. But he doesn't. And so Tamar dresses up as a prostitute. She tricks Judah and sleeps with her father-in-law, and Perez is subsequently born nine months later. It's almost the opposite story of Ruth and Boaz. Boaz fulfills the duty of a family redeemer to provide children for the widow, while Judah refuses to do his duty, and so Tamar has to take matters into her own hands. So why in verse 12 do the townspeople want Boaz and Ruth's family to be like Judah and Tamar's family? Isn't that a curse rather than a blessing? Well, you'd think so. But at the end of Genesis, despite all that's gone on, Abraham blesses Judah, even though Judah does not deserve it. And he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's star from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Even though Judah was a ratbag and his daughter-in-law needed to trick him, we are told that the scepter, the king's ruling stick, will stay in Judah's family out of all the different tribes of Israel. Judah will be the tribe that rules over all the others until one day one of Judah's descendants will rightly take up the kingship and the other nations around will come and obey him. This blessing is that Boaz's family will be one of the ruling families and that somehow Judah's long-held promise will come to fulfilment and a king will come from Boaz's tribe. And so we move on to the end bit of the story nine months later. Uh, Act 4, scene 2. It's like a romantic comedy where the couple get married and then the movie kind of fast-forwards to them with two cute babies later on, nine months later. There's a a cute baby and a chorus of women who in chapter 1, they they couldn't recognise Naomi in chapter 1 because of how empty and bitter she was, but now she is so full. And so they say in verse 14, comes up on the screen, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. God has provided a redeemer, hasn't he? But look carefully at these verses. Who is the guardian redeemer that they're talking about? Well, it says he will become famous in Israel. It says he will renew your life and sustain you in old age. And your daughter-in-law has given him birth. You're probably expecting them to say that Boaz was the guardian redeemer because of what's just happened so far in the story. But all of a sudden, there's a plot twist in the final few verses of the story. Boaz is a guardian redeemer, but he's not the guardian redeemer. This cute little baby sitting in Naomi's lap as her grandson is the one who will redeem her. By, 15, by what it says in verse 15, by renewing her life. And who is that baby? Well, in verse 17, we're told... The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Obed is the guardian redeemer. And his name, well, Obed means servant. The guardian redeemer, the powerful and wealthy one who will rescue people out of their slavery and buy back their land, is named servant. Because our redeemer, Jesus, even though he was rich and equal with God in heaven, made himself a servant, according to Philippians chapter 2. And he served us and emptied himself of his riches by dying on the cross. Jesus, our Redeemer, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, a redemption payment for many. But then the story doesn't stop there. 
It says, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Because this story is not just about the redemption, the buying back of Naomi. This story is about the redemption, the buying back of the nation of Israel. As we saw a few weeks ago, the whole story begins in chapter 1 by saying, in the days when the judges ruled. This point in Israel's history was a time of chaos, a time of evil, where everyone did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And God's temporary solution was to provide judges, people like Samson and Gideon, who would redeem Israel from their captivity to other nations. But then as soon as they died, it went back to how it was before. It didn't fix the problem. And so in Ruth, we have the answer to the problem created by the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends with these horrible words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The problem with Israel is that they needed a king, one of God's rulers, because otherwise they had chaos and anarchy. And so the answer to the story throughout the Bible is a king. But you'd expect God's king, Israel's king, to emerge out of some kind of brutal power struggle. You'd expect him to emerge after bumping off all his rivals through some treachery or scheming or through big biceps and a big army. But what we see in Ruth is that Israel's king, King David, emerges from a foreign woman where you'd least expect it. Not through power or scheming or deception, but through God's faithful love and kindness. Through Boaz and Ruth showing undeserved love and kindness to Naomi. Because that is the kind of king that Israel needs to redeem them from their, not from their enemies outside, but from the enemy within, their own sinful hearts, their own evil. Not a king who's going to come and dominate them, but a king who would show loving kindness to a people that didn't deserve it. And ultimately, our King Jesus came not through force and power, but through love, kindness and service. Naomi's journey is now complete. And the women note in verse 15 that your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. In chapter 1, Naomi lost so much, but now she has Ruth who loves her and is better than she could have ever imagined for, even if she'd had seven sons. In the past, Naomi was so bitter. She felt like God had treated her so badly. But now, with hindsight, we can see that she has come back full and richer than before. It's easy for us sometimes, isn't it, to feel that God has made our lives hard as Christians? Like maybe you're missing out. Maybe your life is more empty because you've decided to follow Jesus. Peter, the disciple, felt like that. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Naomi did indeed lose much, but she received something so much better. And it's the same for us. Even when you miss out on good things in this lifetime for the sake of Jesus and for his good news, Jesus promises, he promises that you will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers. And so inside when you feel like God has done you bad, hard by you or treated you badly, look at the story of Naomi and remember that you will not miss out you will not miss out if you stick with Jesus. Uh, well, reading a bunch of random names is pretty boring. If you've ever been to a university graduation ceremony, you'll know how boring it is. Until you hear the name of that one person you came to congratulate, 
and they spend their 20 seconds on stage, and you clap, and then you fall asleep again. Because random names are not random if you know them, if you have some kind of personal connection to them, and if somehow your story is connected to their story. Sometimes small actions of faithfulness, of kindness, can have compounding ripple effects you could never have imagined. And so the story ends with a beautiful genealogy. We often skip over genealogies in our Bible because we think that they're boring, but genealogies are always important. And this one is important because it takes us all the way from Perez, Judah's son, to David, the first king of Israel. Because we're being shown how in the ordinary story of Ruth and Boaz showing kindness and love, God used these small, this small little love story to bring the king from the line of Judah into the world. And in Romans, we're told that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Friends, God is working good in all things. Throughout COVID, throughout the war that's broken in our world this week, throughout the ups and the downs of your life, all those little details, God somehow is working good. But the problem for us, just like Naomi, is that we're short-sighted. Naomi looked just down at her circumstances in chapter 1 and she concluded based on her circumstances that everything in her life was over. That she was empty. That God had given up and God didn't care. That's because she couldn't see past the immediacy and the pain of chapter 1 to the fullness of chapter 4. And we do the same, don't we? In our world, we live in a world of instant gratification where we're so used to getting what we want when we want it. But God doesn't work like that. Sometimes his plans for our life, our good, may take an entire lifetime. Friends, the Christian journey is not a three-minute YouTube video clip. It is a lifetime of serving and trusting and persevering. And so we need to work hard at developing our ability to tolerate and endure discomfort. You will go through pain and suffering in this lifetime. As part of the general brokenness of this world, we'll experience sickness and pain and wars and death. But especially as followers of Jesus, we'll face persecution and ridicule and hatred. And we need to learn to wait patiently for the end of God's story. For chapter 4, for, to trust that God will work all things out in his timing for good. Because this story ends with the amazing birth of King David. But fast forward a thousand years and another family tree in Matthew chapter 1 shows how from Ruth and Boaz came a baby named Jesus. And he, like Boaz and Obed, became our servant redeemer. And so I'm just going to end now with a quote from the New Testament that shows us how wonderful God's plans and purposes are. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that is, foreigners like Ruth and you and I, through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. All right, we're going to go st straight to a question time uh, and have an opportunity to ask that. But before we do, why don't we come to God in prayer? Father, we thank you that you worked through this small, seemingly insignificant story 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, sorry, to bring about your purposes and plans for a Redeemer, not just a redeemer for Naomi, but a redeemer for the nation of Israel, King David. And more beautifully and more fulfillingly, you brought a redeemer for us through their great-great-great-great-grandchild, the Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you that Jesus 
is a servant redeemer. Someone who came and gave his life, who was willing to count the cost of our redemption, even to the point of death. We thank you that in Jesus we see your redeeming love on full display. Help us, now having been recipients of that redeeming love, to go and show that love and kindness to others, to love them extravagantly, to love them costly, and to love them by sharing Jesus with them. And for his name we pray. Amen.